Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Sports Travel Podcast, where we interview leaders and top athletes throughout the sports event industry. This is Matt Traub, Senior Editor of Sports Travel, and our guest today is Scott O'Neill, the former Chief Executive Officer for Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment. But before we begin, this episode of the Sports Travel Podcast is being sponsored by the Teams Conference and Expo, the world's largest gathering of sports event organizers and the destinations and suppliers that serve the sports event industry. Teams 21 will be held at the Atlantic City Convention Center in Atlantic City, New Jersey from September 27th through the 30th, 2021. This year's conference will again feature the co-location of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic SportsLink program and NGBE Best Practices Seminar, as well as the annual symposium of the National Congress of State Games. For more details on everything we have planned at Teams this year, please visit teamsconference.com. And now, on to the conversation. Scott O'Neill has spent eight years working as the Chief Executive Officer at Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment, best known as the owners of the NBA's Philadelphia 76ers and NHL's New Jersey Devils. Under O'Neill's leadership, HBSE grew into a sports and entertainment franchise that spans not only two professional teams, but also an esports business. They are the owner and operator of the Prudential Center in Newark, New Jersey, along with the 76ers Training Complex, Sixers Innovation Lab, and becoming one of the major players in Elevate Sports Ventures, a sports and entertainment agency. After nearly a decade of growth and innovation, and almost more awards than one could list, O'Neill also has released his first book, Be Where Your Feet Are. Those successes made it all the more surprising when in early July, O'Neill announced that he would be leaving HBSE. Two days after that announcement was made, I talked with Scott O'Neill about what went into the decision, his new book, and much more about the sports industry. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Scott O'Neill, I would like to thank you for joining us today on the Sports Travel Podcast. Matt, it's good to have the opportunity to talk to you. We're, uh, it's an exciting time in this whole industry, so I'd love to get the chance to kick around some things. You know, I want to talk to you about your book that was released last month, The Sports Industry, of course, and not only what has transpired over the last 16 months, but looking ahead to the future. But of course, there was the news this week, the announcement on Wednesday that you'll be leaving your position as CEO at Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment. Try to tell me as much as you can, what went into that decision? It's been a heck of a journey for one. Those of you in this business, if you're listening, you, you know that it's a 24-7 full mind, body, soul experience. And for me, I, I kind of know what I do. I know what I love. Um, I think I have a reputation for building extraordinary cultures. I'd, I'd slightly edit that. I'd say I, my, my one discernible skill in town is to attract extraordinary people. And so... Um, and then they decide what kind of culture they want and they do all these incredible deals. And, and as the CEO, you know, you, you get to see a whole host of things. You get to see growth of a company that started as a single basketball team practicing in a medical college that had no prospects for success on or off the court. We were bottom three in every metric you measure, predominantly from business end, but from basketball side, I had won 50 games and since 2001. I got there in 13. To go from that to... HBSE is pretty awesome. You know, added the Devils and Prudential Center. We are on our second venture fund. We have an innovation lab, esports property, Elevate. We found Elevate sports sports marketing company. Have a real estate company. It's I mean, it's amazing. It's been an amazing journey with insane you know growth. Grew the company over six times since I've been here. So um, and um, and had a lot of fun with the team. And I think I did what I do. I mean, I. You know, my friend says, it's not a turnaround. You just grew. I was like, well, 
define it however you want. Like I can tell you that they're they're world class. This is a world class organization. Maybe despite its leader, but but because of the incredible talent and culture we had here. And um, and I'm not a great maintenance manager. It's kind of not what I do. I'm not interested in it. And I'm I'm really interested in in building and growing and hyper growth and and change and the action that comes with that. And there's a special kind of person that that does that. And there's a special kind of person that takes these organizations you've built and takes them to another level. Um, and I, I like to grow and build. That's what I like to do. And I think this, it was the perfect jumping off point. You know, I, I wanted to go go serve others. And my, my 17-year-old daughter is really passionate about doing something smart. And so we set up this trip to go to Mozambique. So it was kind of a natural break. It's end of the fiscal year. It's after the season. It's all those things that made sense. But we've been talking about it for six months or so. So so that's why it, was, it, it happened. And, you know, we have a good organization. So nothing leaked, which was wonderful. And I have a lot of – I have time for Josh Harris, David Glitzer, Michael Rubin, guys I work for. like. I mean, they're elite deal makers and good people and gave me the opportunity and chance to build and do something I love every day. Like people get to say they get to do that in their lives. So for me, I, I leave like with a full heart of gratitude and appreciation and as much excitement for what's next and what we can build and what we can grow and who to partner with and why and when and how big a vision can we come up with and build. I'm ready to, to explore all kinds of things. When you've been talking for several months about a possible departure and how that would look, how do those discussions go as far as a timeline between the first meeting and a final decision? You know, how do you go to Josh Harris and David Blitzer and say, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that I might want to at some point this year yeah. you know, depart? Well, you know, they're, they're my, you know, I'm a partner in the business or was. So um, it's very constructive and collaborative. We spent so much time grinding and digging through the pandemic and making sure that this organization could V-shape return. And that, that was my big focus. It's like, can we get this business on a, on a better trajectory than we had pre-COVID-19, 20, which it is, going forward. So, so first off, it's like, is the business in good shape? And it's in extraordinary shape. Second thing you look at and discuss is, is how's this management team? Like, can this management team take it to another level? Like, check. And third is, do we have any liquidity issues? Do we have any issues, problems, outstanding deals? Like, do we need to ramp? And, uh, and lean into some deals. Which we, we had some outstanding ones. So we, we went after those to close them. And unfortunately, no, not on what they did. And then we just talk about like how we can help transition and what kind of leader are we looking for and how can we engage in that search. And look, these guys are, they didn't just fall off the back of a turnip truck, as my friends in the South often say. It's, I mean, this, these are like, <laughs> you know, these are, uh, they're elite deal makers. They understand value creation. They understand CEOs. They understand. And it's a long time. CEO, I think the, Average tenure of a CEO in America is about six years, but I, I loved it. I love them. I mean, the nice thing is, is, you know, when you work for people you love, like, and respect and the feeling seemed to be mutual, it's simple, not easy. I mean, we, we talked through a whole host of scenarios. We talked through um, what was best for me, what's best for the org. And, and uh, I think we're, you know, by, by the time this rolled around, we're all on the same page. We're going to have an elegant transition. We're going to have a, an incredible successor who's, who's better, stronger, faster, more experienced, can do an awesome job. And, uh, and I think we have that, that one coming down the pike. And, and so, so I, I look, I love, I love this group. I love the people. I love the organization. I'm just ready. I'm ready to stretch out. You mentioned, I mean, you, you've, you've said that you're not going anywhere. You're not leaving the sports event industry business. You're not leaving uh, the business world. You know, when you have a chance to kind of 
take a step back. You're going to be going to Mozambique with your daughter for, for a little bit of time this summer. Do you take some of that time or even after you return and just say, okay, now what next? You know, cause there seems to be, I, I guess you would even call it just some freedom, some creative freedom in trying to figure out what you want to do with your next business venture. Yeah. Well, I mean, I haven't really had time to breathe. I mean, we, this is just a few days old. I don't know when people will be listening to this or watching this, but you know, I, I got an influx of literally like thousands of emails and texts from friends and former colleagues and current colleagues. And I'm still digging out of those. And, um, you know, I still have to do some cleanup work with people that I worked with our business partners because to some people seem to come quickly at them. We had to obviously continue to run the business and maintain the business. And then um, I, I literally packing for a trip for a month uh, takes a bit of time as well, apparently, as my daughter was telling me last night. So, but I, I think the first time I'm going to think about it is on my trip back in July, early August. On that flight back, it's a, it's a really long flight. I imagine that's the time I'll sit down and put pen to paper. And I'm only taking my phone, so I'm not taking any, any real laptop, no iPad. I'm going to go unplug. The only thing I'm going to use my phone for is to take photos. So I'm ready to, ready to dive in and explore and escape and connect. And then when I get back, I'll have some, some conversations. The world is a changing, as they say. You know, there's a lot going on right now between sports and media and technology and entertainment and how those intersect. And so whether that looks like a fund or whether that looks like we just take a platform like we did with the Sixers and, and build on a platform to grow value. I, I just know I'm really passionate about developing people and driving change in communities. And, and the bigger the platform you, bit, you build, the more people you can impact, you know, both inside and outside. So that, that's what I'm out to do. I, now it's about taking a breath and being grateful, but then also just trying to, you know, figure out and write down what I want to do and then try to figure out how to get there. I mean, it's, it's going to be, a, I'm sure it'll be a process. I want to talk to you about your book, Be Where Your Feet Are, which was released last month. During the writing process between talking with people about their stories and recounting your own stories from your career and life, what did you find out about yourself? You know, the journey to write the book started with my best friend taking his own life. So, so that, that's where the discovery for me was. I mean, I, I found out about grief and healing for sure. Actually, writing the book was not intended to be a book. It was intended to, I was journaling to try to figure it out, to try to get myself healthy and, and recover and understand kind of the role I played, the role I wanted to play in the world and mental health and all that kind of stuff. So, so for me, it was, a, it was a pretty heavy time. The writing was cathartic. Like I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. Uh, some of it was gibberish and, and nonsensical, but but others seemed to like crystallize around these uh, central themes, which eventually became the book. But man, I, I learned that life is messy. I mean, that's one thing I definitely learned. I mean, just, you know, we live in a, this Instagram world or Facebook world or TikTok world where, where everything is filtered and looks amazing. And that's not life and it has to be okay. And for those of you who are listening right now, if you're a leader and you're a manager or you influence and impact people or you're in the media, we have a podcast. It's like, man, you have this special place and obligation, opportunity to impact people. And the way you can impact them is to be vulnerable and to talk about the time when you got fired and how you dealt with that, how you went through an emotional struggle. It was real. I heard from a dear friend of mine, she had read a part of the book. She took a picture of it and said, I'm in tears. I'm sorry. And her view was, because I said like, hey, I, she said, look, I had no idea when you got fired from MSG. I just, I didn't know you were in the tank. Like, I didn't know that you had some mental health issues. I didn't know that you had anxiety. And it's, it has to be okay. And by the way, I told her, my text back to her was, I love you. 
It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with me. And that was my journey I was going through. And I'm not, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not, I'm not running from it. I, I had a really hard time. I think the more of us that we can share the, the, the journey, I think the better. You know, I've got a daughter with real social anxiety. Guess what? Everyone I talk to about it is like, they, they're like, yeah, my daughter's the same. Or my son's having those same issues. Or, yeah, my colleague at work is really struggling. Like, the world is struggling. And, and I think that's the solace that came from the takeaways from the book, from the outcome of the output of the book, from the, what I'm hearing from, from people who read it. But, yeah, I learned a ton. I, I, it was such a self-reflective time that you often don't have, you know, just because we're on the treadmill running so hard. Obviously, the process you mentioned, it's been, it was a long time. It wasn't something that you just did turned around in a couple of months. And obviously, the last 12 to 16 months has been like anything that pretty much anybody has ever experienced in their life. If you had published a book written from experiences solely before the pandemic, do you think, how different do you think it would have been? Because you're touching on, on, on a lot of things in terms of mental health for just, in just when it comes to families, yeah. not just athletes and everything. And I have to imagine, obviously, there's been plenty of attention given to in the sports, in the sports world about mental health and how athletes have been dealing with it. But there's, it, it extends beyond athletes, as you well know. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, you know, most of it was written before the pandemic. During the pandemic, we we're cleaning it up. I hired this amazing writer, Michelle Bender, to help me get my words a little tighter. And she was like, we have to tackle the pandemic in here. I was like, great. So like, we have to tackle social justice. I was like, terrific, um, because it was timely. But I think the impact of the of Be Where Your Feet Are is going to be better now coming out of the pandemic, because it is a book of of understanding and healing and, you know, purposeful living and self-improvement and through exercises and stories, et cetera. And I don't think it would have had this kind of impact, but what it would have changed? I don't think so. I mean, I've been talking about mind, body, soul, get sleep, practice gratitude, be with your feet, or put your phone down, head up for, for several years. Um, and those that have worked with me or, or live with me here in the house, you know, this is how we, how we talk at church at home at school. And I just think, I, I hope the message resonates. Do you expect anybody in Mozambique to have seen uh, be, be where your feet <laughs> are or, or have said, hey, I read your book recently? You know, that happened so, so funny, um, you know, having been with Madison Square Garden and the Knicks during Linsanity, you know, that was a pretty public time. So that would happen, like, where I would be somewhere and people would be like, Linsanity or whatever, you know. And then now we trust the process, our second movement I've been part of. That's been like Shanghai, London, Manchester, Bilbao, Spain, like people literally have stuff on there, like, trust the process, and, you know, in, in an accent. <laughs> or, uh, and, and that has been, that's kind of funny. If that ever happens with Beware Feet Art, then, then I'll know I, I have some sort of success on my hands. I, I want to talk about the place that you spent the past eight years at. And from a sports perspective, Harris Blitzer Sports Entertainment, it uh, not only owns several professional teams, most notably the 76ers and the New Jersey Devils, but it also owns the Prudential Center in Newark, New Jersey, where the Devils play. Where do you see the sports event industry going from a venue ownership standpoint? I mean, the Sixers need a new arena. So, I mean, whether, you know, their, their deals up in a decade or so, and they have wonderful partners in Comcast, and hopefully they'll, they'll figure out a way to work together and build an arena together. And if not, the Sixers will go build them on their own. And that's pretty, that'll be a pretty amazing transformational experience for the city of Philadelphia. Um, and I hope they do it together. I mean, Comcast is such incredible partners. Um, but regardless, like they need a new place to play. And then on the, the Prudential Center front, man, that's it's one of my favorite buildings in the world. Like I, I think Donna Daniels, who runs that, that building, she's an elite, elite operator. And, you know, I always joke, I was like, eat off the floors. I mean, it, it's, it's clean. Um, the staff, you walk in and they, 
They just love you. They hug you with their eyes. You know, it's one of the few venues I've been in in the world. Ushers, ticket takers, security, union crew in town, electricians, et cetera, the, the folks who, who actually make it work and make it happen. And they've only got, they're all like, they love their jobs. And there's something to be said for that, to have like that light in your eye and that passion for what you do and how you do it. And it shows. It really shows. I had a friend of mine recently tell me, he said, he's, I was asking like me, well, what's your best interview question? I'm like, that's not my strength. You know, and, and he said, but w- w- what is it? He said, well, my, he said his was uh, from one to 10, how happy are you? And he's like, I've never hired anybody that says below an eight. And I was like, huh. Like, I, I'm not advocating for that. I'm just saying like, I love the notion. I, I think if you interviewed our, our team at the Prudential Center, they'd be nines and tens. They're happy to be there. They love their jobs. They love the people that come in. They love the fans, the experience and the music and the big concerts and the games and family shows. And you just feel like that's it's like you're walking into your living room or it's like Norm walking into Cheers. I hate to date myself, but it's like that, you know, that experience where you just feel like you're in your living room. And I, I love that about the Prudential Center. So Josh and David have put a lot of money into that building. I mean, we, we brought them some pretty audacious, like, a new scoreboard is like the biggest scoreboard in the world in the arena. They're not free, you know? You know, they continue to invest in the building, and that'll be the key. That's what I think with all buildings. When you start getting 13, 14, 15-year-old buildings, you know, you can either not spend, and then you're going to wake up 10 years later and have to put 250 to $300 million in, or you can spend money along the way. And, and I think they've done a really nice job investing money along the way. But I love that building. During your time at Harris Blitzer, you also have worked in the NBA League office. You've worked at Madison Square Garden, among other things. Is there anything from before the pandemic that you think will never be the same for the in-game fan experience? And how do you think it will change how teams and leagues possibly measure fan satisfaction? I don't know. I know that from a team perspective, look, I've been banging my chest on two things, like banging my chest, banging my desk. And my chest, no, banging my desk for a couple of things. <laughs> Boy, that's not a slip, what it is. Um, and that's like, I, th- I think we, the sports industry, have to get a lot smarter in data and we have to get a lot smarter in content. And, and no one's that interested in talking about those two things. And my organization is definitely like nauseous having heard me rail um, about them and where we need to invest. And I don't, and so I, I think that this will dovetail into your answer. One is, is, just we have to know who's walking into our building. You know, from a security end, for sure. From a health and safety end now, of course. From a marketing perspective, like we just have to know more. We have to know who they are, not only in our building, but those following us on social or watching their games on the television. We as an industry need to get a lot smarter, a lot faster. And we've done a lot over the last five years to get much better. When we walked in here, I think we had like 50,000 names of the Sixers and 40,000 names at the Presser Center. And now we're like well over 5 million. And so anyone in that business knows that it's not just about having names, but it's about the depth of data, which we're getting better at. But that's that you need that as a baseline to, to be able to grow. And what that gives you an opportunity to do is really understand what their preferences are, what works, what doesn't work and why. And, um, and I think, again, as an industry, um, there's some teams that do it extraordinarily well. Miami, uh, Orlando, does it Miami Heat, Orlando Magic, two teams that do it extraordinarily well in terms of pulse surveys, um, more research, focus groups. Uh, and I, 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 I'm sure there are other ones that do great, but those are the two that come to my mind. And then content, like what, what I think is different is like we have to figure out, we don't have unlimited resources. So with the finite resources we have, we can either like invest them into 
our experience, which has to be world class, but also, you know, only 1% of our fans will ever attend a game live. 1%. So we have 99% of our fans out there. So if you work with me, you'd have heard this before. I'm like, what are we doing for the 99? Like what? What are we creating? So, so to create, we've, you know, I don't know if the stat's true, but somebody said at my staff meeting on my way out, like we took our content team up eight times. So, but I don't know if that's two to 16 or three to 24 or one to three, you know, uh, or one eight. But like, there are a lot of people producing, shooting, directing, editing, coordinating, trafficking content in multiple languages. And, um, and I, I think as a shot across the bow to the industry, like we have to do more in that area. I'll just give you like a crazy number, like devils, Sixers, it's like, it's a rocket ship. I mean, it's about, you know, nobody, everybody said it wasn't a basketball student when I got there. It's a basketball student. And when I got there, everybody said, you're five of five, meaning we're, we're the fifth most popular team behind the Eagles, Phillies, Flyers, and Union. And I, I argue that the team is one or maybe two, but one or two. I think for the, for the Devils, it's, it's harder. It's, it's not a real popular, I mean, it's not, it's not a high-demand team. It never has been. And our, our social media numbers, though, are in the middle of the pack. You know, Sixers are, you know, fourth most followed team in China. Like, so it's, it's like every match against Sixers is like one, two, three in the league, one, two, three, four. Devils, though, when I walked in, I think we were 29th or 28th in terms of how we measure social media following, engagement, et cetera. And now we're like mid table. My guys argue that we're 11th, but it's going to depend on who's playing what, whatever. Great. Say we're 11, 12, 13. Say we're 15. I'm like, that's. All that is, we have a terrible team. We haven't won in, we won playoffs once in eight years. We haven't spent a lot on the team. And they'll, they'll come. It's, we're building it the right way. Of course, there. Three years from now, we're like, oh, this team's amazing. But but it's been a tough slug, you know, slug to get here. So, like, the team is not helping you. And yet, you're, you're mid-table in terms of your, your social media. That's just talent. You know, that's just, like, the group, Jillian Frechette, she leads the marketing team over there. It's an incredible executive. She brought in several incredible people to work with her. And all of a sudden, like, this is a team that – now, that doesn't help you now, okay? That helps you 10 years from now because you're growing the fan base. And so, like, do you have the discipline as an operator to, to take, a, take a long lead view, to trust the process, if you will? Like, I argue you had no choice. You know, it's like you look at the regional sports network business, you know, which those in the business are, are calling it a melting ice cube, okay? So I'm not going to make a judgment on whether that is – I think that's way too hard to – a description, but let's just say like a lot of people in it don't want to be in it right now. You better be in a D2C business. Like you better be able to sell the customers. Right now we're selling tickets with a hundred salespeople making phone calls. When's the last time you bought something with somebody calling you on the phone? How about me? Never. I, I would say never. I would say never time. either. I would never. say never. Either. I don't even pick up the phone. Yeah. But like if I want to buy something, like I bought a car online. Can we get better, smarter, do it differently, be more efficient? Of course we can. And is there a need for people to get on the phone with something? Of course there is. There always be that human-to-human contact. But like, can our base business be reliant on 123-year-olds making outbound calls? I don't think so going forward. Now, that might be a five-year trend or an eight-year trend. But like, what infrastructure are you putting in place now so that if that RSN does melt to an ice cube and goes bankrupt or or it goes away, or it doesn't renew your contract, or offers you so little money, like you get sick to your stomach. Now you have built your data platform. You have your data warehouse. You understand who your customers are. You've built a D2C platform so you can talk to them and, and execute. And now you're just like saying, okay, I've got X amount of fans. Now I'm going to sell them a package. And they can watch it through us, through Amazon or whoever you're going to, whatever platform you need. Um, so I, I think that having a little longer lens, I mean, I talk about in the book, Trust the Process for Personal and Professional. 
that's a professional example where you need to have a little bit longer lens and, and try to get out of the, the like the I'm standing right in front of the tree type experience. I know fan satisfaction at sports events has always been a hot topic. Even before there was this explosion in analytics and data and making sure that you had fans satisfied when they left the arena, even if it, when it was a nebulous kind of topic, that was something that owners and t- pros teams, college teams always wanted to make sure that they, that they had, they had satisfied fans leaving the arena. And I know even before the pandemic, there were teams that would have decreases in attendance, partially because of the in-home viewing experience, which has become so much better over the last couple of decades. But also some critics would say because fans are sometimes in, in many places being priced out of going to games. How do teams bring those diehard fans in city who you can reach back in a post-pandemic landscape, especially when some of your fans may have suffered greatly from a financial perspective over the past year plus? Yeah, we're not, we're definitely not going to solve the the country's ills on, on the, on the disintegration of Main Street America. Like that's, we, we don't, we don't, we're not empowering though. What we, we have a real clear mission and that is to our wise about building community, building connection, bringing people together, helping them both celebrate and escape and hug perfect strangers and create memories and moments. That's what we do. And so with that understanding, there are always tickets priced just north of what a movie costs. You know, so it's a little bit of a red herring. One of the challenges is, is that if you price too many of those and you put them out on the market, opportunists come in and buy them and then resell them at a higher price. And so your, your demand, what you're, what you're trying to do as an operator is you're trying to get people to experience the game at a price that they pay like that. That's a, that's a good outcome. And you don't always have that opportunity because it's America, right? We're, we're capitalists. And so capitalists will, it's a capitalist system. And so if someone can buy a hundred seats they're gonna, for 20 bucks and sell them for 40, they're going to do it. If they're going to buy a hundred and sell them for 30, they're going to do it. And buy them for 20, and sell them for a hundred for a big game, they're going to do it. And so, you know, we've, we've ramped up our group sales efforts to make sure that we're, we're touching kids and, and kids have an opportunity to come in at a discounted price. But this is big business, and and there are a lot of seats, and and so there's always, there's always like when I talk to people that have like this conspiracy theory, I'm like, hey, look, I mean, it's just this is basic economics, supply demand. It's like you have to curve is different than normal. So in a supply demand curve, you want to hit that point to maximize revenue. The problem is, is like you don't want to optimize revenue because if you did, you'd have empty seats, and so so it creates like the basic. I might be talking to um, theoretically economic principles but you you basically have like you want to be just off the curve and then sell the seats that wouldn't normally sell at a lower price that, that's the that's the way you want to do it you want a full stand you want a home home court home ice advantage and the last thing you want to do is, is have people feeling like they can't afford to come to a game but by the way by the way i i, I totally i dismiss like the notion to that that people aren't coming i mean our tenants have been up every year both teams and like you even our, our crappy years I would say it's like you have to work extra hard to get them and you have to put on a better show. But we need, we as a people, like, I mean, if we saw anything during a pandemic is that isolation is bad for the humankind. It just is. Except for my youngest daughter. She'd rather not see anybody ever. She's like, yeah, I'm going for ice cream. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to stay home. You know, she's a, so some people don't like it. The rest of us that need human contact, we miss it. Um, so I, I think we have, we have real purpose to bring people together. The Prudential Center in 2019, one of the things that it did, and you talk about how venues will evolve over time, is it opened a William a sports betting lounge. And it was one of the earliest moments where a sports venue and gambling became intertwined. 
What have you found about the, the sports betting landscape that has made it such an attractive landscape for teams and leagues to be partnering with? You see almost on a near daily basis, a, a, a league or a team announcing that some type of new gaming or sports betting deal. Yes. My good friend, Jason Robbins, who founded DraftKings, was, we were the first uh, betting deal in the NBA. I think in sports too in the U.S who's gone on to incredible success. He was fantasy at the time, but now of course it's, you know, whatever, $40 billion market cap public company. So good for him. And he's a wonderful guy and great leader. Uh, but nonetheless, yeah, I mean, Ted Leontis has it figured out. I mean, he, he's the guy. I mean, the William Hill lounge that uh, Adam Davis had done his deal with William Hill and set up at the production center. It's a lounge that, that encourages you to bet on your phone. And so it's good. Uh, what Ted has, and, and we don't have it, you know, there are only like two states, I think, in that, or two states, I think it's Illinois and, and the District of Columbia, where you can actually open up like live betting parlors in your arena. That is the jackpot. I mean, that, I think that's transformational. And, and, and something, if, if you travel to Europe and have been to um, EPL, Premier League games, you see them, you know, you see them at the booths. And I, and I, and I think that, that eventually that'll, that the need for that will, will plummet. Because we're all going to be on our phones with prop bets. And I, I think that's happening. And, and that'll be good for us because it's higher engagement. And ratings will go up, et cetera. But the one thing I've been pitching to, to my team, and I don't know if this can work, but they're gonna, I think they're going to try it, or my former team, <laughs> is, um, you know, we have this, like, scoreboard. So the, the idea is, like, you drop the scoreboard, and then you, you have the floor, and the floor becomes, like, the biggest party in the world. And you, and you pick events like the Kentucky Derby and you throw a Kentucky Derby party at the Prudential Center and the race is on the biggest scoreboard in the world. And then you have people there to help you bet. You know, you have like, you know, people from whoever your partner is, William Hill, et cetera. And then the Super Bowl comes and you do it. You go to do it again. And then the Masters comes and you do it again. And unless you have a concert or a game, throw a party, you know, and then it just becomes about, can we promote it to the right people? You know, because then it becomes like effectively a, a, a huge, restaurant, bar, betting lounge. And I think that, that that creates a pretty interesting opportunity to create business in some of our dark days. Harris Blizzard not only was one of the first companies to get into the sports gambling landscape, but you also got into esports very early with, with, the acquisite, with your acquisitions there. How do you find ways and how have you found ways to incorporate esports into your own pro teams and venues? Or do you keep it separate because they're two separate things, but still a very viable investment for a pro sports team to be involved in regardless? Yeah, when we first got in the business, it was, um, it was integrated. And then we ended up acquiring Clutch Gaming, um, partnering with the Rockets, and then brought in um, our friends at Delaware North and TD Bank North, the, the Bruins folks into the, the business and then Susquehanna we brought in another outside investor so when you start bringing in outside investors and acquiring other companies and bringing outside money it, it's a little bit it, it, it you know the birdie has to fly out of the nest it's a great business to learn from in our in our business I mean they're not saddled by the by some of the stuff that traditional sports are saddled by but they also understand content content integration better they're, they're more creative they'll take more risks the, the players understand their brands at a higher level and how to how to engage fans at a totally different sphere. So, so I, I think we've definitely learned a ton from Michael Prinderville, who runs our esports business and his crew. You know, we've talked about you know the esports, the gambling, venue ownership. 
HSBE has the Sixers Innovation Lab that promotes and works with local businesses in the area. You've mentioned uh, briefly the, Ele- the partnership with Elevate Sports Ventures that does all sorts of different things in the sports industry. There's plenty of other sports franchises who also, when they look to build a new arena or a ballpark, they look at it as part of a broader mixed-use entertainment district. Over the over your career, have you seen the days of sports owners just focusing solely on having a team numbered because diversification is so important now? I mean, it depends on why people have their teams. You know, I mean, the good news is, is the value of these teams are skyrocketing so high that if you came in and you bought a team for $100 million and it's worth $2 billion now, you might, that might be enough to keep you interested. You know, that's, that's tremendous uh, asset value appreciation. But for, for those who are the new age partners in these leagues, you know, the money's it's getting to be real. And so the opportunity to leverage them as platforms is the business. And so they might, we might not choose to play in it if you don't want to do that. But, but um, you have this incredible opportunity on, around real estate. Um, it's transformational. C- creating the opportunity you have for deal flow. Like if you just, you know, just walk your suite level or you just walk the front row and, and look who's at your games. It's, it's a who's who of your city, your province, your state, and sometimes your country. And so, you know, we, there isn't a person who won't pick up your call. Uh, there isn't a deal that someone won't entertain with you. I mean, you're sitting at the, at the you know, the center of sports and culture and people and government. And so, so for me, that's, that is the business. Um, whether everybody gets there or not, I don't know. I, I have this strong sense that there will be a lot of consolidation going forward over the next decade because you, you do get uh, quite a bit of synergies and scale for bringing teams together um, just from data alone. Man, all I see is opportunity. So I, I'm pretty, you know, when I see an organization that doesn't do it, that's when I, that's what gets me excited. Is it, is it the unknown that keeps you interested? It keeps you involved that, you know, wants you to, that, that makes you now kind of look toward the future and see what's, what can I create differently? Is that what was, has always been part of your motivation or stimulation just from a career standpoint in, in various positions? You know, for me, it's just the people, 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 people. You have an incredible, I mean, I love the people in this business, but the group you work, I work with, it's like you're, you know, becoming your family. You know, I, I know their kids and they know mine or their partners, or friends, or spouses, or their roommates. And I don't know, man, right? The organizations I've worked in have just been families. And so the reason I'm motivated and interested is, is to, to create that again. And then you think about the opportunity of, of young people that come to work for you and they're 22 years old, they're wet behind the ears and they don't know a thing. And then, Voila, like they're running your chief revenue officer. I mean, we have, you know, I have so many fun stories. Like, and I'm talking about specifically Katie O'Reilly, who's uh, we hired her, Chris Heck and I hired her when we were at the NBA. She's an assistant at the University of Michigan, just an assistant. And now she's a chief revenue officer. Kind of amazing, you know, to, to see that kind of growth. Brittany Boyd is another incredible woman who, um, who came on as a director of guest service as a, at the Prudential Center. She's now running marketing for the Sixers, you know, like, Donna Daniels is another, um, she worked with us at the NBA as well. And she came over in like an ops role and now she's a general manager of a building. I mean, you know, like, so you see these, some of your colleagues just step up and move up and, and run big things and accomplish amazing things and get recognized and rewarded and become these incredible leaders. And that's what keeps me coming back. From a pure sports fan viewpoint, 
when you're on, you've got your phone, how many, what alerts do you have for your teams? You know, talk about your just being a sports fan growing up in New York city and yeah, you know, yeah, having worked for, sure. for Madison square garden, working with two, two with Harris Blitzer, you know, what's, what's it been, what's your journey as a fan? Like, and if you bet, you know, who are your teams? You know, when you say, here's yeah, my yeah. teams, this is who I'm with. You know, I've been in this business a long time and, and my, my notion of fandom is very different from what a fan is. You know, I, I remember working for the Nets as 22 years old, growing up a Knicks fan. I hated the Knicks because the Nets were my family. I, I knew everything about every player. I knew a bunch of the players they're all my age. And then I went to the Knicks. I hated the Nets. You know, and you're like, well, how can you do that? And then I grew up a New York Giants fan. And I went to go work for the Eagles and I love the Eagles. And I have not been able to recover with the Giants ever. You know, so and then I, I was with the Sixers, I mean, Knicks and hated the Sixers. Then the Sixers hated the Knicks. Like, and I don't hate organization or the people running it which is going to make my next part of this question even more complicated but like the actual competition yes i, I do i have a nasty competitive streak as for teams i root for i root for teams where the people i work that i love and i have friends all over and sometimes it's complicated you know sometimes you know it'd be an nba finals and and uh your friends are on both teams and i root for both of them i really do and you know I, if you have told me that like a yankees fan growing up actually roots for the red sox I'd have thought you'd lost your mind. But Sam Kent, <laughs> one of my good buddies. Like I, I will say, it's just you know, that's what I do. So it's it's not inspiring to fans to hear, but I, you know, I will I will tell you like wherever my friends are is where my heart is. And be where your feet are is the name of the book, Scott O'Neill. I hope that you're able to enjoy your time in Mozambique with your daughter for the next month uh, with your phone almost entirely off, and uh, look forward to seeing what happens in the future. Thank you, my friend. We'll talk soon. Take care. This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Past episodes are also available at sportstravelmagazine.com, which features breaking news and in-depth features on stories related to the sports event industry. Be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com, at Sports Travel on Twitter and Instagram, and at Sports Travel Magazine on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, this is Matt Trial for Sports Travel, and thanks for listening.